In his book, Searching for the Self, one of my seminary professors shares a personal story about a pivotal moment in his life. In the chapter titled, A Graveyard Shift, he opens with these words. Adrian, your father passed away this evening. The ambulance came and took him from the nursing home to the hospital, but he never woke up. A quavering message from my mother on the voicemail, by pressing the button marked play, I had entered the irreversible. He goes on to describe the long transatlantic flight back home to England and how the black dog of grief and depression lurked behind him and even growled at him along the way. He missed his father for all the usual reasons and more. He says, as long as father was alive, I could pretend I was a young man. Even though I was in my late 40s, if I had a father, then I, by definition, was a son. And if my father was of the older generation, then I, by definition, must belong to the younger generation. He says that the day after the funeral, he sat on a hilltop in the graveyard next to St. Andrew's Church, and he contemplated the history of the land and the battles that had been fought there nearly a thousand years before. The old church was built on the site of one of those ancient battles built by a king so that prayers would be offered for the souls of the slain. And it was in that dark moment of contemplative grief that Dr. Smith wondered, where is the prayer for the slain when you need one for your own slain soul? And as he stared at his father's gravestone, the light of truth broke through the darkness of grief. And he realized the death of my father was the death of my youth. It was time for the son to become the father. It was time for the boy to become a man. But how? How? I imagine that Joshua experienced something similar to this after he heard the sad news. Moses, my servant, is dead. In the wake of Moses' death, Joshua undoubtedly played back the memories of his life with Moses. Moses was his spiritual father. From his youth on, Joshua was the assistant of Moses. Joshua went wherever Moses went, up and down the mountain, in and out of the camp, up to the tent of meeting. Joshua would stand guard outside the tent while Moses went inside to stand before the glory of the Lord. Joshua was one of the spies Moses sent to scout out the land, and he watched all but a handful of his own generation perish in the wilderness during their 40 years of wandering around. From the beginning of the Exodus till now, Joshua has been the commander of Israel's army. He's now one of the oldest men in Israel. And even though he is a much older man, he still goes by the nickname that his spiritual father Moses gave him. Joshua, the Lord saves. 
Moses is dead. And Joshua is left trying to remember. Remember Moses' face. Remember Moses' voice. Remember Moses' words. Who among us hasn't done the same kind of thing? In the wake of grief and loss. And Joshua does remember. And he remembers that Moses prayed and asked the Lord to appoint a man over the congregation that would lead the people and bring them out and bring them in so that the congregation of the Lord would not be like sheep without a shepherd. He remembers the Lord answered Moses' prayer and set him apart as the shepherd of Israel. He remembers how Moses laid hands on him in the sight of all of the people and commissioned and invested him with authority in the sight of all the people. And last but not least, Joshua remembers that not long before Moses died, Moses summoned Israel and Joshua together. And he spoke to each of them and gave them a charge. To Israel, Moses said, The Lord your God himself will go before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. And to Joshua, Moses said in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous. For you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. But that was then. And this is now. And Moses is dead. Joshua lives. He's the head of God's church. He's the leader of God's people. But so many questions crowd his heart. How do you move forward? How do you pick up the threads of an old life? How do you go on when in your heart you begin to understand that there is no going back? How, O Lord? How? Sitting between two worlds, between the flood and a fortress, between slavery and freedom, between the wasteland and the promised land, Joshua remembers the Lord and he reflects on his words to him. Joshua remembers the promise of the Lord. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Joshua remembers the presence of the Lord. Just as I was with Moses, so will I be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Joshua remembers the power of the Lord. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. And once again, Joshua remembers the presence of the Lord. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Moses is dead 
But the Lord lives. And life must go on. The scriptures tell us that Joshua, the son of Nun, was a man full of the spirit of wisdom. So he knows what all of this means. He knows that the death of Moses means the death of his youth. That he's no longer assistant to the national leader. He is the national leader. And we can imagine Joshua sitting in the shade at midday, gazing across the hills and the plains, looking towards Jericho, contemplating his next move, pondering his life, asking, am I a savior? We know he was a soldier. We know he was a spy. We know he was a shepherd. But is he a savior? And so he's lost in thought when all of a sudden, His life is interrupted by sunlight flashing off a blade. And he looks up and out of nowhere he sees a man standing in front of him a short distance away with his sword drawn. And it's in this moment that Joshua realizes that this campaign just got real. And here's why. Keep in mind that just a short time ago, Israel and Joshua crossed the river Jordan at flood stage. There is no turning back to the wilderness. They are pinned in. They've entered into a new land. They are strangers in a strange land. And from the point of view of the Canaanites, the Israelites are trespassers. They are invaders. They are a threat that must be dealt with. And Joshua does not know who the man with the drawn sword is. It's a mystery. All he knows is that this man is a warrior, not a welcoming party. That this man has not come out to chit-chat, but to throw down. And to make matters worse, the 40,000 soldiers that Joshua is leading, are incapacitated. Because after they crossed the Jordan River, the Lord God commanded that all the fighting men that were born in the desert in that 40-year wandering must be circumcised, for they had never been circumcised. And now they have received the mark of the covenant in their flesh, And they are vulnerable and weak, and they are in no condition to fight. So this is a sticky and a tricky situation. And what does Joshua do? How does he react? Joshua gets up and he advances towards the man with the drawn sword, and he confronts him in open daylight in the hills and plains of Canaan. Why would he do such a thing? We know enough about Joshua to know that he is not a cowardly man. He is a courageous man. So he would do it just out of sheer courage. But that's not the only reason he did this. He did it also because he has the word of God echoing in his heart and soul. The word of God that said, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Why? Because I will be with you. And so Joshua 
gets up and acts by faith. He takes God at his word and he shows his faith by his works. And in this story, his works look like confronting an enemy, confronting a man who has threatened him, a man who dares stand in front of him. This is what faith with works looks like in Joshua's life. And not only does he bow up to this man, but he challenges him with a question. Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he receives an answer that he did not anticipate. The answer is neither. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And now I have come. Now I have come. And it's that phrase that is so significant because it marks the fulfillment of a promise God made to Israel some 40 years ago. When they crossed over the Red Sea and they came into the wilderness, God said to his people, Behold, I will send an angel before you to guard you on the way to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for my name is in him. If you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. And when my angel goes before you and brings you to the war tribes in the land of Canaan, and I blot them out... You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them. This is an unfulfilled promise for 40 years, and now I have come. Now, on this day, all these years later, the one God promised to send has arrived. And it's a reminder to us, as it was to Joshua, that God is faithful and true, even when his people are not. And so how did Joshua respond to this message from the man with the drawn sword? The scriptures say he put his face on the ground and he worshipped. He put his face on the ground and he worshipped. This is an act of reverence. It is an act of obedience. He's putting himself in his proper place. Now, this raises all kinds of questions for us. It should raise the main question, which is, who is this mystery man with the drawn sword? If he's merely a man, why in the world would Joshua bow down to him? When God has said, no man will be able to stand before you. And if he's simply an ordinary angel, why in the world would the angel allow him to stay with his face on the ground? The angel surely would have told him, don't worship me, worship God alone, stand up, as we see see in other stories throughout the scripture. But that's not what this man with the drawn sword did. No, this figure simply receives Joshua's reverent act and obedient worship. Why in the world would he do that? It's because this man with the drawn sword is none other than the Lord. A special appearance of the pre-incarnate God-man, 
a spiritual manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is what scholars like to call in fancy terms a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. And as a result, Joshua falls on his face before him, yielding the ground to him, rendering obedience to him. As the eyes of a servant humbly look to the hand of his master, so Joshua humbly looks to the man with the sword and asks, What does my Lord command his servant? In effect, speak, Lord, your servant hears. What is thy bidding? And the commander of the Lord's army, to put that in perspective, the commander of Thousands upon thousands of angels and archangels commands two things to Joshua. First, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And second, look, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. So to flesh that out a bit, what the man with the drawn sword is saying to Joshua is this. This place where you are now, this place where you are bowing, this place where you are standing, this place is a place of worship, not a place of warfare. So take off your combat boots, lay down your sword, take a rest, be at peace. You are standing where angels fear to tread. You're in the presence of God. And the second thing he says is this is the counterintuitive military strategy that you are required to follow if you hope to gain victory on this campaign. You have your marching orders. Now go. What we have here is Joshua's burning bush encounter with God. Similar to what Moses experienced, it becomes a pivotal moment in his life. And it's pivotal for a variety of reasons, but two reasons in particular. It's pivotal because this gives Joshua fresh perspective on who he is and who the Lord God is. It's pivotal also because it helps him to prioritize his life. What's been on his mind since he crossed the Jordan and as he prepared the people to go on this campaign is war, fight, mission. And now he has learned from God that worship is priority one. The Lord God is teaching Joshua in this moment that worship is life. Everything else is just details. It's the most important thing you can do. It's even more important than fighting for a good cause and taking possession of Canaan. Without worship, that's never going to happen. And if it's more important than that, then we need to learn that it's far more important than making money or playing sports or studying for exams or doing yard work or window shopping or even going on mission. Worship is life. Everything else is just details. And this is part of what Joshua learns in the moment, that worship is priority one, and without it, nothing else matters. 
So this encounter marks not only the end of the Exodus, but it also marks the start of the conquest. It is a turning point in our series, a turning point in the gigantic story of the Bible. Things are going to be very different from this moment on. Now I can tell by the inquisitive look in your eyes that you're wondering, what in the world does this story have to do with Jesus? And if you weren't wondering that, well, you should have been, because that's what we ask you to ask every week. What does this story have to do with Jesus? And the answer is, much in every way. As the story of the Bible unfolds, we learn that Jesus was the man with the drawn sword, the commander of the Lord's army. And we know this because in the apocalyptic vision of the book of Revelation, we see Jesus wielding a sharp double-edged sword. He comes out of heaven riding on a white horse. He is called faithful and true. With justice, he judges and makes war. His face shines like the sun in all of its radiance. His eyes are like blazing fire. And on his head are many crowns. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven follow after him, and he draws his sword to strike down his enemies and his adversaries among all the nations of the world. He treads the winepress of the fury of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings. Lord of Lords, Jesus is the divine warrior. He comes with a sword, not to bring world peace, but to wage war on the world, the flesh, and the devil. He comes in order to make peace between holy God and sinful people. He comes to disarm principalities and powers, and he comes to display them in public shame. He comes to destroy the works of the devil. He comes to defeat darkness and death. He comes to deliver his people from evil. And how does he accomplish all of these mighty feats and marvelous works? First and foremost, by coming into our story and sharing our human experience. By laying down his life for the sins of the world at the cross. By lifting up his life again from the grave. By taking his seat at the right hand of God on the throne in heaven. And finally, by coming to judge the living and the dead at the end of all things. You see, like Joshua, Jesus will come and put the world to right. And that means that someday the silence will be broken. A trumpet will blast, an angel will shout, the foundations of the world will be shaken, and the walls of this earth will collapse. And the people of God will go straight in before him and rise up to meet him in the clouds, in the heavens. And on that day, and on that day, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And why will they do that? They will do it because as Joshua and Jesus 
have shown us the Lord saves. The Lord saves. So here you are, like Joshua, standing at a crossroads, stuck between some sort of flood and fortress, between a rock and a hard place, wrestling with all of the questions and issues of life, stressing over many things, perhaps wondering, how will you move forward? How will you pick up the threads of an old life? How are you going to go on? And the answer is, by coming to grips with the fact that there is no going back. There is no turning back to Egypt. There is no going back to the wilderness. There is only going forward. There is forgetting what lies behind and pressing on to what lies ahead. And why would you do that? You do it because you are a baptized Christian. And you must be strong in the grace of the Lord. You must learn to fight the good fight of the faith. You must put up with your share of rough treatment. You must not get distracted by civilian affairs and worldly things. You must strive to please your commander. Why? For your struggle is not against flesh and blood enemies, but against enemies that are far worse, far more dangerous. Your struggle is against fallen angels and demonic forces of the unseen world. Your struggle is against cosmic powers in this dark world, against evil spirits in the heavenly places. That is your struggle. But here is your charge. Do not fear them. Do not be dismayed by them. Do not be distracted by them. Do not live in dread of them. Why? For it is the Lord Jesus Christ who goes before you and he will never leave you or forsake you. Only be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be very strong and courageous. Stand your ground, strong in the spirit of grace. And strive with all your might to enter God's rest and take possession of the true and better promised land that God has offered to you. The new heavens and the new earth. It's yours for the taking. Until then, keep in mind that the battle belongs to the Lord. And faith is the victory that overcomes the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let us pray.